is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we talk to Gail Hill, one of the personalities from Jaguar Enthusiast Club Racing, to talk about women in motorsport. Plus, Tom has a disastrous second race at Thruxton, and Richard West discusses catering in the top teams of the world. JECpodcast.com Hello and welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Hope you're well. Wayne Scott with you. And uh, we've left the shores of America. We've left Dallas in Texas. A fantastic interview with uh, some real Jaguar fans over in America in the last episode of this podcast. But we're well and truly back in Blighty now and we're talking about racing on this week's episode. And I'm joined to help me talk about JEC Club Racing by Colin Porter. Hiya, Colin. Hi Wayne, how are you doing? It's uh, great to be back on the podcast. It's good to have um, you back because of course you've been out and about because you managed, goodness knows how, but congratulations for doing it, to rescue some sort of a season out of this year, didn't you? Where have you been over the past few months? Yeah, we, we did. Well, as uh, Tom has done a very good job of keeping you kind of informed weekly uh, uh, of what we've been doing. Yeah, we, we managed to get uh, half a season uh, into a very condensed uh, period of about three months. So we, uh, we, we've been down to Thruxton, uh, Snetterton, and uh, across to, where, <laughs> where do we go, Donington, um, uh, and finally Castle, Castle Coombe. And I have to say, I, I think I got wet at every single <laughs> circuit that, that we went to. Um, so uh, we haven't had the weather with us, but... You know, we really shouldn't complain, I don't think. Uh, You know, I think we've been very, very fortunate with what's going on to get in at least uh, half a season. You know, a lot of grassroots sport just simply hasn't happened this year. Absolutely. And how have the teams and the racers found it this season? Were they keen and eager to get out or was it a bit of a struggle to fill the grids? How did it play itself out? Well, it's it's kind of gone a, a couple of ways, really, Wayne. Um, there, there are those that are, were absolutely desperate to to get out there and uh, and get some racing, and also those, quite understandably, that have kind of said, "Well, this season is going to be a, a bit of a write-off. I'll spend more time preparing my car for for 2021." And uh, save save my pennies this season, and uh, you know we'll, we'll we'll come back fitter and stronger the, the season after. So there's kind of been two camps, if you like. And um, but those um, those that have come out and, and raced regularly, you know, that they've they've thoroughly enjoyed it, and um, I think they've just been glad to be out doing something. To be honest, you know. Yeah, absolutely, and it's been great to see them all racing and and taking part. And uh, also keeping the camaraderie alive, I guess, because in a normal year, this is a really important part of everyone's lives up and down that paddock. They live and breathe it. It's a real commitment throughout the season, isn't it? And I guess they had a gaping hole in their lives when they weren't racing. They, they live for it, you know. It, it's their it's their release. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of them run run businesses themselves, and um, they they lead very very hectic lives. And, and coming out racing is a is a bit of a, a release for them, so you know they were really really glad to uh, to get out there, and um, you know that the racing that we've had has been close and exciting, and we've been on some very very full grids. Um, we've been sharing a, a grid this season for the first time, 
uh, with a um, classic sports car club open series. And it's, it's, you know, been a real uh, different challenge for the guys to, to race with cars with different closing speeds, um, you know, coming into to braking zones that with lighter, lighter cars. It, it's been really interesting, uh, a challenge to have grids where they were either coming through the back of us or we were going through the back end of their tail markers. So it, it's been a very, very different, different season. So remind us then for those who have just joined the podcast uh, late on in the series and didn't catch the last time I spoke to you or aren't familiar with the Jaguar Enthusiast Club, how this race series works with the club, how you enter it and what sort of cars are entered. Well, the, the, the race the, the race series uh, really began, um, with, you know, the, the club started racing in 1998. So we've been racing for uh, for, for 22 odd years now. Um, but, but the particular aspect of our racing that we're talking about is the saloon and, and GT championship, which really covers cars from the late sixties, the, uh, the series one, uh, XJ and goes through to cars, uh, from the millennium. And we have, uh, four classes, which are class, class A cars being, standard road cars that have safety modifications like a roll cage, fire extinguisher, electric cutout, uh, racing seat and harness. Those are kind of the basic fundamentals for the class A cars. And then we go to class B cars, which are um, kind of stage one tuned versions of the, of the class A car. So, so the first stage of tuning, if you like, right up then to the Class C cars, which are modified uh, cars, which have, uh, you know, uh, greater levels of, of tuning. And then we go on to the Class D cars, which are the fully modified uh, cars, some, some of them with forced induction, um, like Tom's car. And um, th those are the cars that tend, you tend to see running uh, uh, at the front. But our class system allows for um, anyone to win the championship. You score the same number of points for winning your class, um, irrespective of whether you're in class A or class D. So a class A car that's you know, running on a fairly modest budget could come out and win the championship. Um, and they very often they very often have in the past, you know, so it. it opens up a, a fairly level playing field for cars um, from from very, very small budgets to cars with much bigger budgets in, in Class D. Um, getting into it is fairly, fairly straightforward. You know, you can go out either and buy uh, a car that's already prepared, and in some ways that's the cheapest thing to do. You had Mike Seaborn on earlier in the podcast this year, and Mike um, told the story how he went out and bought uh, uh, a, a prepared car for three and a half thousand pounds, an ex-championship winning car, and um, uh, got into racing uh, on a fairly small budget by buying that car through uh, a, a site called Race Cars Direct. You know, or you or you build one, and, and a lot of people start with a Class A car, a road car that maybe they they bought or inherited. Um, and then start to modify and 
And sometimes that they start with a class A car and then over the years they start to modify it and move through the through the classes. And of course, not only does it level out the budgets required to enter racing and be competitive, but it also makes for a fantastic spectacle for spectators to see, doesn't it? And although we haven't had spectators at any of the races this year for obvious reasons, it is a fantastic day out, isn't it? Oh, it, it is, Wayne. And I honestly believe that in terms of British uh, club racing, there isn't a more spectacular side than seeing 20-plus big Jaguars launching off the the line. It's one of the most spectacular sights in, in racing. It really is. Well, that site is just about to get even more spectacular in 2021 because you've come on this podcast with a new announcement. And you mentioned that you've been sharing grids throughout 2020, but the Jaguar Enthusiast Club racing season will move with some very different people next year, won't it? Explain what the new announcement is. Yeah, we're really excited, Wayne. You know, um, we, we've, we've raced for, um, I think, 18 years with the Classic Sports Car Club. And we have a wonderful relationship with that club and, and that will that will carry on. Um, you know, we, we helped to found that club in, the, in its early days. Um, but um, for economic reasons, they were no longer able to give us our own grid and, and hence why we share the grid um, this season. Um, but we felt as a, a club, in order that our, our destiny, um, you know, uh, to be in our own hands and, and, and to grow our grids, we needed to have uh, our own our own grids. So we, we got involved in in conversations with a number of organisations, and uh, Chris Robinson and, and James Ram. Uh, Chris Chris is our competition secretary. James Ram is our drivers rep and and one of our sponsors. Um, they did a lot of background work um, with. Uh, classic touring car club racing and uh who are members of of, of bark the british um uh, automobile racing club and they they put in put in the groundwork and then we we concluded uh, a deal a few weeks ago to go racing with with them classic touring car um were established in 1974 so they've been around for a, an awful long time and they run uh, a number of championships uh, pre-66, pre-83, pre-93, pre-2003, pre-2005, and a Ford and uh, Thunder Saloons. So, so they run an awful lot of racing. And, and they've given us the opportunity to have our own uh, grid again. And I think we as a club fit very well alongside those uh, championships uh, with our history, uh, you know, in Jaguar, in, in touring cars, um, particularly in the TWR era, and uh, I think it's I think it's a good place for uh, us to be, and and we also have some other exciting news in joining that championship, uh, in as much that they have full TV coverage uh, across the season, so. Our members, if they can't get to the racing next season because of COVID themselves, they'll still be able to watch us on the telly, Wayne. So, um, yeah, the championship is coming to the telly. Um, It'll either be on, I think, Motorsport TV 
or on uh, a live stream on 24-7 TV and on YouTube. Well, that's really exciting because it's going to put Jaguars right in front of brand new audiences, isn't it? And especially the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, uh, I think it's a huge deal for the club. Um, racing, racing gets the club an awful lot of publicity, uh, a lot of uh, media coverage. You know, we, we have a double-page spread every month in Jaguar World, our own magazine, of course, lots of other um, printed magazines, racing magazines, uh, social media, um, as I mentioned, YouTube as well. And, you know, this, this opens up another string to our bow and it gets the Jaguar enthusiast name out there um, for, you know, outside of the normal realms that, uh, you know, the closed Jaguar world, if you like, um, to a much wider audience, you know, and, and really you can't buy that kind of publicity. Absolutely. Well, we can't wait to see Jaguars on the TV racing with the JC logo emblazoned across them and uh, to see some Jaguar action, uh, whether we can make it to the track or not. Of course, we'll be publicising all of those races through Friday Spotlight, the weekly email that you get sent into your inbox. If you want to register for that, you can do very simply via jcpodcast.com. Just use the uh, little form there on the homepage to fill out your details to receive Friday Spotlight. Or, of course, you can get all the latest information and if you fancy entering you can do so via joining the jaguar enthusiast club as well at jc.org.uk where you'll find all the motorsport news on there as well so uh, colin you've got a very busy year ahead with this uh, new lease of life for jaguar enthusiast club racing so we wish you all the best with it and uh, we look forward to some exciting circuit action in 2021 thanks for joining us thanks wayne well, we'll also be talking to one of our big personalities from Jaguar Racing in our interview with Gail Hill next. Memories of Motorsport. Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Well, continuing once again, of course, with Richard West and memories from a lifetime in motorsport. Uh, Richard, you are known to us who know you well as a cigar man and a food man. <laughs> So this subject is going to be easy for you, I think, today. And um, it's really the fact that motor racing teams try and get the edge over their competitors in all sorts of different ways, don't they? And one of the ways that you developed whilst you were at TWR with the team and has been developed by all sorts of teams through history is feeding the masses, keeping the team fed and moving forward on its stomach. Tell me how that's developed over the decades. Yeah, thanks for that intro, Wayne. That might explain why the scales are where they are in the mornings. No, I've always I've always been a foodie. I love to cook. I love good wine and the occasional cigar. My mother was a professional cook, and I guess that's where I get it from, you know. But in motor racing parlance, um, when I joined Williams in the early 80s, Williams had a Winnebago American motorhome, and it was run by two uh, couple, married couple, Tim and Maureen. They were very loyal to Frank and, you know, Patrick and the guys around them. They were a lovely, lovely couple. They worked so hard for the team. But, of course, it hadn't been developed as part of the corporate offering. So what would happen is they would make sandwiches and soups and teas and coffees. And people pretty much got fed in the back of the garage, you know, all of the garages, um, Dave Price and Ian Bracey, they had uh, price catering in those days as well. And there was a big kitchen where you could go and you could get fed, but it really wasn't very corporate. And in fact, it wasn't until I went to McLaren and Ron and Marlborough had invested, this was mid-84 to 85, they'd invested quite heavily in an articulated catering hospitality unit, which had quite a luxurious interior. 
And a lady by the name of Sally Wing and a number of others ran it. And it produced really good quality food. But it was also the start of the era when Willie Dungle, the famous sports uh, dietitian and physician that we've talked about before from the Dungle Clinic, he started to really watch what the drivers consumed. But equally, he started to look at what the teams were eating because, you know, trays of sandwiches and meats and cheeses left in the back of warm garages. You know, in those days, most people got through them because we all hardened up. But there was the odd case of, you know, tummy upsets and food poisonings. So there was a general push throughout the uh, early to the mid 80s to not just bring the catering up to a level that the mechanics would benefit from and the driver's health was looked after. But we also started to entertain sponsors more and more in and around our motorhomes at the circuits. And I guess this goes hand in hand as well with the development of drivers that we've discussed before. The fact that they went from just being jolly chaps who'd smoke a few cigarettes and hang out down the pub in between races to being utter and complete athletes in 100% training 100% of the time when they weren't out in the cars. And diet is a key part of that, isn't it? It is also in the quality of the food and finding the local suppliers and the local sources. Um, towards the late 80s, when I left McLaren and went to join Tom, uh, again, the catering in sports car racing, although sports car racing was, you know, in its real element, there was over 40 cars in the championship, the WSC. Catering really hadn't developed very far. And I, I said to Tom what we've been doing, you know, in the Formula One paddock, and he said, well, we should do something similar around Silk Cup Jaguar. And uh, Chris Lease, who had been the Goodyear Motorhome uh, manager in Formula One. Chris joined us at TWR, along with a brilliant chef guy called Gary Timms, who'd been working at the Ligon Arms in Broadway uh, in, in uh, Worcestershire near Stratford. And Chris and I flew out to America. We, we spent several weeks out there looking for motorhomes. We found two beauties from a, a motorhome sales yard in Texas, and we very excitedly got the money wired across, and we're, we're getting prepared to get these things shipped back to the UK. But the Texan very politely pointed out that texas is pretty much in the middle of america where we were and these motorhomes needed to be got to either the west coast or the east coast so we uh, we drove them across to the east coast they went on to a, a ship and were returned to the uk where the twr boys said about them tore all the back bedrooms out made those into dining areas and gary and chris did a remarkable job of bringing high quality cooked catering into the sports car paddock uh, feeding the team and all of our guests and sponsors and in fact i think it was Le Mans in 1989 when we served just shy of 4,000 people in six days and uh, when you realize what that takes the amount of raw materials the amount of cooking that it took from chris and gary and the girls that we had working for us it was a remarkable achievement in that era amazing yeah and few people would understand the scale of that really unless you'd you'd sort of witnessed it during race weekend and did that really sort of help not only the general feel and the camaraderie within the team but did it help you to sell sponsorships much more effectively with their relationship with the team then well it did because you firstly vips me are with you you're able to dare I use the word, control them better in the sense that you make sure that the other teams aren't whining and dining them nicely and trying to get their dollars from them. You're able to keep them in your own environment. You start to put your own mark on it. And at the same time as we were doing what we were doing in sports car racing, uh, Bernie Eccleston and Paddy McNally, Patrick McNally, had started to set up the Paddock Club, the Formula One Paddock Club, and they were taking catering and guest attendances to a new level. And if you look at the, the way that really grew throughout the 90s, you started to see then double motorhomes with canopies between them. And then you saw the emergence of the incredible McLaren Centre that Ron Dennis commissioned 
a three-story building with dining areas, a media center, uh, showers, steam rooms, toilets, video <laughs> replay rooms, all sorts of things. And then, of course, Red Bull almost went one better and they created this remarkable thing, you know, the Red Bull Energy Station, which is open to anybody wearing a pass in, in the paddock. And apart from obviously promoting Red Bull's products, it's a place where you can get very fine quality food. Journalists are always welcome. And it's an open strategy to sponsors, journalists, um, and all forms of media alike. So it's come an enormous way in 30 plus years. Mm. Well, a fascinating insight into the catering behind motorsport teams. Who'd have thought it was so big? Uh, but I'm pretty sure the catering that Tom has during the JC Racing Championship is uh, back to the good old school days of pork pie and sandwiches. Uh, we'll find out how he got on in the second part of his diary from Thruxton next. Listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Well, I'm absolutely gutted after race two. We definitely made the right decision going for a drier setup as I had had an absolute brilliant start and the car was just absolutely blisteringly fast with the dry line appearing so I believe I made it up to second um, after about lap three um, I started getting a little bit of a hesitation on the car now I don't know if you can remember on some of the earlier podcasts we talked about my car having a lot of sensors um, and we have quite an advanced DCU on the car so we use that to log a lot of data so we know exactly what's going on so we have multiple sensors um, we actually have sensors on the on each cylinder um, we measure that from multiple places so one of the things that we keep a close eye on is engine exhaust gas temperatures because that can tell us a lot of information on how the vehicle's running now um, basically I had a flag come up my dash that one of the EGT sensors was registering hot and that can mean a multiple things but um, essentially it can cause major engine damage if us to get too hot so it could be something as simple as uh, as not as high octane fuel as we're normally running and that we're getting detonation or there's a problem with ignition timing or something along those lines it could could mean a whole host of things so um, when you throttle on and off on the car it resets those parameters now it did that in lap three um, I managed to reset the parameters and carry on which obviously at the moment it could have just been a glitch with the sensor we don't know um, so I carried on and like I say we were making really good pace and then after lap four unfortunately the car switched off essentially now um, the car actually turned off as a safety net to stop any further damage from the car. I'm not sure what that is at the moment, but the fact that I've seen a, a very high EGT temperature on one cylinder would suggest that it's something to do with that. So we don't know if we were actually having any um, really hot EGTs or whether it was a fault with the sensor um, that's put it into default. now. Uh, as I'm sure you can imagine, it's massively frustrating um, that we couldn't finish a race um, because of the safety parameters. But having said that, potentially it has av avoided us really heavily damaging the engine. So I would much rather the engine switch off under a safety parameter than it to damage the engine. So it's kind of good news in, and bad news at the same time. Good news is the system's working and it prevented any damage. The bad news is that we lost out on the race. But Having said that, that's what this weekend was about. It was an extra race to the calendar to see what the classic touring car series is like. As um, you'll probably find out more shortly, we are moving over to racing with those as of next season and it's going to open up quite a lot of opportunities. Um, so you'll all be able to watch it on Motors TV and YouTube.
YouTube, etc., which I think will be massively beneficial. So, um, like I say, it's a bit of a shame. Um, it is the last race of the season. We don't have any more track days or anything now. So, um, it's what we'll probably be talking about over the next couple of podcasts is what we've got planned over the winter for the car. Obviously, we'll analyse a lot of the data that we've used over this year and we'll come up with a plan for next year. And we've obviously now got quite a few uh, months over Christmas to put these into place and to iron out all of these niggles for, for next year in the series, which I'm really looking forward to. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk. Well, on this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we're going to talk to one of the top female racing drivers in the UK and an absolute Jaguar fanatic. Uh, The list of successes in Jaguars for our next guest is huge, really. Winner of the prestigious 60th Burkitt six-hour team relay race, uh, XJS national championship winner, an XJS Class D champion, and numerous trophies and wins with the British Women's Racing Drivers Club, of which she's a former chair. Welcome, Gail Hill, to the podcast. Hiya, Gail. Good morning. Hi, how are you doing? Very well, thanks. I understand we talked to you as you're nursing a bit of an injury. Nothing to do with racing, though, at all. <laughs> no. Um, sadly, um, whilst warming up for a tennis game, um, first time in 12 years, I fell over and basically um, dislocated my elbow, but went through the tendon and, and done all sorts of damage to my right arm. So, yeah, who'd have thought tennis was more dangerous than motorsport? Well, we wish you well, because we do want to see you out in cars again. And uh, let's start at the beginning, Gail. How did it all begin for you and your fascination with motorsport? (laughs) Well, it was certainly late in life. Um, I was 42, I think. So it's 20 years ago. Um, And I owe it all to Joyriders because um, I was leaving work one day and Joyriders came around the corner in a stolen car. And, and hit me and um, wrote off my Audi 80. And with the insurance money, I, I looked around and I, I saw an XJS on Auto Trader and thought, God, blimey, I could afford to buy a Jag. And um, yeah, promptly went out and bought a, a 3.6 XJS, um, which I loved. Over that winter, it turned out to be, like many, um, quite a bit of filler in it. So it all bubbled up. But by then, I'd joined the JEC. I'd been to club meetings in Coventry. Well, actually, I I tell a fib. um, It was the opposition. It was the JDC initially, and then later the JEC. So don't string me up for that. (laughs) Um, But um, I met some really nice people um, and then um, actually changed my car to a v12 cabriolet which i loved it was my everyday runner for for a while um and um, which raised eyebrows actually because i was in the nhs and um if you remember there was some petrol rationing some you know around about the god when was this to be anyway 20 years ago and as a as a an essential worker um i wafted up to a petrol station once in oxford in my v12 gas guzzling jag wafting my my essential worker card so i could you know fill up so it was quite funny but um i i took my v12 to mallory park for one of the jec um track days 
and loved it. And there were quite a few race drivers there who who were quite nice too. And one of them took me out in his car and, and in fact, several did. And then one or two people said um, when they came out with me that I was quite good at, 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 you know, flinging the car around the track and did I want to go quicker? And they'd give me some tips. And um, I loved it. And so I promptly went back to Covcats, who I'd bought my car from, and um, Chris Boone is the proprietor, and he he subsequently went racing. And um, and I said to him and his brother, how much would it cost to um, get a car ready for the track? And back in those days, um, you didn't even need a roll cage, actually. But, um, I, you know, they, they said, um, well, funnily enough, we've done a car track prepared just with a roll cage but still standard interior um but we can't afford the time to race it um we'll rent it to you and um uh you can drive it to the track and it'll advertise the business and and you know as a lady racer you'll get a bit of extra publicity so i said yeah great so um i'm a bit embarrassed to say that um my first year of racing they they um i, I rented it for 500 quid um for wow. seasons racing <laughs> um i don't think they'd do that today and um and they would service the car and look after it and i'd go and pick it up drive it to the track race it <clears throat> drive it home which I, I did most of the time and um only with the odd little dink occasionally and um i think i did that for a couple of years um and i was hooked completely and utterly hooked so you were always a Jaguar fan then, sort of tucked away in the closet there, so to speak. But that uh, that moment getting that money was basically what sort of just gave you the opportunity to finally get one, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd always you know, loved sort of classic Jags and, and you know, and, and in terms of the XJS, you know, the, um, the was it the new Saint, um, what's his Ian Ogilvy, you know, from back in those days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, and I never thought I could afford to buy a Jag. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, had it not been for those joyriders, it wouldn't have even entered my head to change my car and, and buy a Jag. Um, but, um, I, you know, and I've never looked back, to be honest, and, and although it's cost me a small fortune over the years, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything, I, and, and I'm completely hooked on racing. Um, and um, the, the people I've met and friends I've still got, but also it eventually led me to, to joining the Women Racing Drivers Club and, and actually being chair of it. And I mean, you know, it sounds like a who's who in motorsport. I've realised the people I've met and been involved with over the years. So, um, yeah, it changed my life, really. Um, fair to say. Well, what's great about the story is that you entered all of this world really through the Jaguar Enthusiast Club and that's why it's great to hear your story but yeah. racing that first season those sort of first tentative steps in the championship there's a big leap from your first trip out at Mallory Park to being on mm. that grid doing all the argy-bargy to get you know get oh, get yourself yeah. established how yeah. how easy how difficult was it in those early seasons um well it was pretty terrifying and I thought I'm going to do this for a season, maybe two. You know, this is going to be ridiculous. And um, so obviously I got my NSA license. And, um, and luckily back then there was a, a, another lady racing. She'd sort of 
um, Tracy, um, oh God, I've forgotten her surname now. Um, Tracy and Simon, there was a, there were partners and I'd sort of gone and watched them a little bit and, um, she did it for a couple of years and, and so I didn't feel completely alone. Um, and you know, I remember pitching up, I can't actually remember where the first race was. It might've been Snetterton, but I'm not sure. And and I remember turning up and thinking, what the hell am I doing? You know, I was terrified, but I've always been very competitive. You know, when I was younger, I was into athletics and squash and badminton and tennis. And, um, you know, like, like to do well. And it was no different with motorsport. I, I really didn't want to be last. And I, I particularly didn't want, because it's, it's mostly men, as you know, um, I didn't want people saying, oh, God, you know, what's this silly old trout playing at, you know. Because um, I was obviously, I, I was that a little bit older too, you know, at 42, this is 2002. Um, it, it's a bit old to be entering motorsport. Um, and I certainly remember those, uh, I, and actually, um, I never have been last. I've been close to last once or twice, but I've never been, ever been last actually. Um, and I wasn't last in quality and I wasn't last. I think I was third from last and, um, in the race. And I was, I mean, I was, the adrenaline was pumping. I was terrified, um, but also exhilarated. And, um, and of course, you know, for those first few races, the idea is a not to lose, not to lose control, but also to try and beat the next car in front. And and in those days, I mean, we had thirty car grids. You know, in saloons and XJSs, we had two separate grids, so it was fantastic racing. And um, and so it was, you know. And I was in the road going class, um, <clears throat> and and would basically try and just move up you know there normally two races each weekend and and I would always you know see the guy who was leading my class and try and look at which lines he was taking where they were breaking all this sort of stuff um but also it was a very basic car and and I remember almost after every race you know because you chat to people at the track and I'd be sliding about, and I remember going to Chris one day after a race and saying, "Look, Chris, I, you know, I think it's not this car sliding about; it's my fat backside on the seat because it didn't even have a race seat." I said, "Any chance of a race seat? I think it would improve, you know, how I feel the car moving." And they said, mm, "Yeah, okay, yeah, we can do that." You know, so they fitted a race seat that did make a difference, um, you know, because it's all about feeling what the car's doing. And it sort of progressed after the first season. Uh, and I remember saying, you know, the car's a bit springy. Um, it, it really could do with stiffer springs and, you know, maybe a bit of lowering. And, um, you know, because I was, I was getting all the technical jargon by then as well. And, and they said, mm, yeah, because I did two seasons renting the car. And uh, they said, look, tell you what, you buy the car and we'll do the work for you at mate's rates because they knew I was hooked. And so that was it. I actually bought the car and um, and then started to upgrade it, um, which meant I stopped having holidays, stopped buying <laughs> posh makeup and clothes and jewellery, um, which I still don't have, um, but spent the money on the cars. And so it was a slow case of development. And I think... Um, 
by 2005, that was when I won the my first title really the the road going I was leading the championship actually so it took me three years to develop um to get to basically the sort of front of the grid in my class and um and by then we you know I was I was going out with a chap who who is pretty handy with cars himself so he was doing quite a bit of work um and um you know and I developed my skill to the point where you know it was just exhilarating every time i went out and would that be a tip to any sort of novice driver joining the jc championship then don't try and push yourself too early on take time to develop and and learn skills and and eventually it'll come to you because that seems to be your story yeah it, it was and and i i think um you know it was partly because I, as a female i didn't want to sort of embarrass my gender i wanted to do as best i could and not people think oh god you know so i I wanted to try and earn the respect of of the other drivers um by being safe being sensible um you know not being stupid and 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 you know thinking i could win the race first time out so um so i took my time and um and i'd like to think you know that i did did win the respect of of my sort of peers and um you know in fact I, I know i did and um and i never really had any fallings out with anybody actually in all the years i've been racing so um you know because sometimes you have to accept that occasionally accidents happen actually that's not true i did fall out of one person <laughs> in 2005 <laughs> but um but um yeah you know you expect accidents happen and um and it, it's, you know, people think they know how to drive a car fast. But when you're on a racetrack, learning racecraft, and also um, body language, if that's the right word, of how other drivers drive, who's gonna, who is going to dive up the inside, who is going to give you space, who is going to squeeze you, you know, and, and, you know, try and sort of bully you into making an error. You learn all these things from watching and racing with people. And um, when you know someone's style and body language, well, because it's a bit like a game of chess in a way, then you know how you can counteract it, you know. So it, it's 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 as much in the mind as, as physically driving the car, I think. And that, that's the way I approached it. Yeah, you have to get to know the other people, your opponents, the other people on the grid that you're up against and get to know their, their personality. That's yeah, a, yeah, yeah, a really good do. tip. Yeah. A really yeah. good tip. Well, you, you did have uh, quite a tasty accident, didn't you, at Brands Hatch. Uh, uh, talk mm. us through that one. And, and was it difficult to get back in the car after that? Oh, God. That that was certainly my worst ever weekend. It was 2005. Um, I was leading Class D, comfortably and i was leading the overall championship as well and uh, we were at brands hatch it was in the summer um it, if i remember correctly there was going to be a dinner dance on the saturday night because the ceo of jaguar cars was there for the weekend as a guest of honor and um i'd uh funnily enough my birthday present had been a set of um weights you know um corner weights for the car um uh that year and i 
Uh, we'd set the car up on the corner weights, sort of adjusting the suspension to get better balance. And in practice, I remember phoning Simon, my partner, saying, oh, God, this is this is blinking awful. You know, the car feels really weird. Um, you know, I don't know what we've done. Anyway, then we got the times, and I was about two seconds quicker than everybody in class. So even though it felt odd, it had done the trick. So I qualified on the Saturday, a bit further up the grid, than I would normally do and um, it was a 32 car grid and I, I was about ninth I think or, or something like that and um, going into the first bend at Paddock um, I had a really good start and there was a, a guy um, cause I had two crashes that weekend I actually had two cars written off um, uh, there was a guy who came around Paddock in a V12 I think and he got a tank slapper on and he was going left and right quite quite seriously left and right and um and of course i've got 20 odd cars behind me and you know there comes a point where you have to go right or left yourself and i went right to the inside this was after the compression coming up the hill and next minute you know he took me out at the side it was pure accident he just lost lost control and, and instead of backing off, he kept his foot in. Anyway, he put me into the barrier and completely wrote off the four-litre road-going car. And obviously no points either for the championship. So um, we recovered the car and I'd found Simon, my partner, and I was pretty upset. And I was fairly bruised from that, actually. It was a big hit. But as it happens, my intention, because I, I was fairly confident I was going to win the championship that year, and I was going to move up to the fully modified V12s. And I bought a V12 off Ray Ingman, who's well, well known in Jaguar circles, um, for the next season. And we'd had it resprayed in Alan Mann colours, and it was all ready to go. And I'd, I think I'd done one test session in it. Um, it was a 5.8 litre V12. Well, anyway, Simon said, you want me to bring the v12 down and you can still race on sunday and i thought oh well okay why not you know points the points and um all the other drivers had to agree to let me um use a different car in a different class which they did and um so the car was promptly delivered on sunday morning um i had to do three laps to to you know just to sort of um because I hadn't qualified the car, so I put it through scrutiny and started dead last on the grid and had probably the race of my life um, to go from 32nd. I think I ended up in about eighth place overall. Um, didn't, you know, and, and was uber careful, you know, to not overtake anybody stupidly and not, and not take risks. So, because I didn't want to damage the car and I'd never raced it before. Um, and I used to do talks and show the video. Anyway, um, last lap, I was catching up two other V12s in my class and knew that if I could get them at Paddock, it would be more points. And so the three of us were almost line abreast, going over, as it happens, over the finish line, but neither of us realised it was the last lap. And another driver, who I won't name, uh, ahead of us, uh, unsighted because I was on the inside and these other two cars were on my outside had lost a wheel at Clearways 
and gone down the outside of the track three wheels on his wagon which was okay because in a way he was just going to get past the finish line and if he'd stayed on the left that would have worked okay but he pulled across the track to turn into the pit lane exit um you know to garage the car and the three of us um uh were flying up still racing and the cars just ahead of me um to my left had had got a better sight and they'd seen him and they managed to miss him one by about a foot and i just plowed into him at a probably 110 115 miles an hour literally um the, the checkered flag had come out but we were we were i was within half a car length of the, the guy next to me and i t-boned him flat out full chat and um ended up in hospital um you know with concussion and cuts and bruises and and i mean luckily it yeah, this was pre-hands devices, so um, I got some loose teeth at the front where where my head had, you know, the, the, the front of the helmet had caught the steering wheel, and um, another car written off. So I was particularly upset. Um, and um, but bizarrely, I, I still had a chance because um, I was pretty competitive by now to win the title. So we rebuilt the blue car. Um, which had been written off on the day before for Croft, which was going to be the last two meetings of the season. And um, and I took it up there, and it did feel pretty odd because I was still pretty sore at the time. You know, I'd got uh, quite a few bruises. But um, by then I thought, well, I can still win the title, and no woman had ever won it before. So, um, But even then I had bad luck um, in qualifying um, somebody had, had gone off and left a bit of debris on the track and, and I'd gone over it, not really realising. And it had bounced up and slightly crushed the fuel line. Um, and in the race the next day in the dry, um, where you know you wanted full power, the car kept losing power and we couldn't work it out. It was only when we got the car back to the workshop we realized the fuel line had been slightly crushed. So under full power, you know, it was just fuel starvation. And consequently, uh, over the two races, I went backwards because I'd qualified first in class in the wet. But in the dry, um, you know, couldn't couldn't use full power and ended up, um, um, you know, going backwards. And I think I still won the, the Class D title, but I think I lost the championship by three or four points. So, um, yeah, um, Brands Hatch 2005, my absolute worst day in motorsport. Cost me, cost me two cars, but actually testament to the strength of the cars because um, it was a huge, huge crash. Uh, it, you know, I, I, got, I walked out, well, I didn't walk out, but, you know, I walked out of the hospital the next day yeah, we're just with a few bruises, and um, you know, so it could have been a lot worse. I mean, it, it is interesting because this is the thing with club racing. You're not getting paid to drive this car for someone else. This is not your career. This is something that you're doing uh, for your own enjoyment, really, isn't it? So mm. was it difficult to sort of justify it to yourself to say, yeah, it's worth me getting back in this car and, and risking all that again? Um, it, well, it was because, you know, my son, how old was he then? I don't know, probably about seven um you know and eight 
and he'd come to a few races and he wasn't there that weekend but my brother was actually he'd brought his family um and he was terrified uh and my mum wasn't happy either she thought i was completely wasting my money um and it's a bonkers thing to do but if if it gets into your blood um and i've you know i mean i've I like the odd glass of wine, but I've never you know, taken drugs or, you know, anything like that. But I would probably say I was addicted to racing. And um, uh, and I sort of justified, I mean, it, it, it was, because I, I only worked in, as a carer um, for in the NHS as a, as a sort of care manager. Um, so I didn't earn huge amounts of money. Um, and it, you know, it was a massive financial blow and, 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 you know, it was hard to justify initially, but um, I thought, well, you know, what else am I going to do? I, I could have a nice holiday, you know, to Greece or Turkey or Spain that would cost me a couple of grand. You know, I could I could buy nice jewellery and I could, you know, go to the hairdressers every couple of months instead of three times a year, you know, but how does that compare to motor racing? And it just doesn't. So, um, uh, you know, and I, I was lucky because Simon, my partner, you know, he, he's worked on, on all my cars in you know, more recent years, as well as Chris at, at Carve Cats. Um, so, uh, you know, some of my costs, it was, you know, obviously he doesn't charge me. He don't, or I, I only have to pay for parts. So, so I, could, I could keep the costs reasonably sensible and i justified it by saying you know i do cut back on all these other things that people think of as as you know you know holidays clothes makeup jewelry and i spend it on the cars and and um i didn't regret it i really didn't because uh there is nothing like that exhilaration and also the camaraderie i mean in fairness after that accident um and it brought me to tears really you know uh, all the other drivers clubbed together and there was enough money to because my race suit was cut off me that weekend my helmet was destroyed um you know all the other drivers clubbed together and i could buy a new race suit and helmet with the money well that that says a lot about you know jaguar drivers and the club um you know and and if people had a few parts that i could have you know uh, either gratis or uh, you know cover costs that's what happened so people rallied round, and um you know so it, it was as much about the friendships and and as as, as the racing but no the idea that i was going to stop um no chance and of course i still wanted to win the championship which i did the following year so it's a common thread with all of the racers that i've talked to on the jaguar enthusiast club podcast over the course of this series that they always cite a supportive other half in all of this and yeah it's definitely yeah. a requirement isn't it <laughs> it certainly is no it definitely is it definitely is and, and in fairness i'm um i mean i you know i can probably talk technical to a level better than most women but in fairness i mean i'm useless with any spanners and um uh, you know uh, i'll get home and i'll say you know sam say how did the car feel 
And I might say, well, it was understeery a bit, it was oversteery, or it was a bit soft here, you know. But he will know that that's maybe because the spring setting isn't right or the damp setting isn't right. And so he'll fiddle with it and then say, go out and tell me what it's like after that. So I can describe how, you know, the car's handled. And, and obviously he'd watch the videos, but he would sort of know, well, let's try tweaking this, whereas I wouldn't have a clue, you know. So, um, you know, so yeah, he, he was a huge help. Well, with all forms of motorsport, it is a team event really and the mechanics the people that prepare the cars are just as much a part of the success as the driver behind the wheel um but of course you have gone then on to inspire other females to get into racing and um let's talk a little bit about your involvement with the british women racing drivers club Mm. then how did that all come about and did you see that as an opportunity to get more women on the grid yeah, I mean, I, I joined the BWRDC, I think, after my first couple of years racing. Um, uh, I'd sort of heard of them. Um, but, you know, I'm, you know, I wasn't that political about things. But, you know, I realised that um, at the race meetings, and particularly when Tracy stopped racing, um, there was probably three or 400 drivers at a race meeting, you know, in total, and there might be three women. And, and I thought, this is bonkers because um, motorsport is one of the very, very few sports where men and women compete equally, you know, um, you know, on, using the same equipment on the same day against each other. There's not many sports where that happens. You know, horse eventing is probably one of the other big ones. Um and I joined the club and I was fairly quickly asked to join the committee. And um, and, and it was a really good thing to do. And, and the club have their own championships, you know, where you submit points and, and there's always an awards dinner. And, and, you know, it's quite nice picking up the odd pot, you know, because that's all you do get back from, from all your hard effort and work. And, um, and also it meant it gave me an opportunity to meet I mean, just, you know, Claire Williams, David Richards, David Brabham, Rob Austin. I mean, I could go on. Uh, John Surtees, Sterling Moss, all sorts of people, um, who some of whom had, had been sort of heroes of mine, really. And um, so I was very proud to try and um, develop the club and develop links. And, and also, from a personal point of view, um, it raised my profile because, I mean, 20 years ago, I was, even though I was in my 40s, I, I got aspirations to, to race at a higher level. But then you do need serious money and sponsorship. And I used to spend all the close season, you know, contacting companies, sending out promo videos, um, etc. But unfortunately, um, my my sponsorship raising efforts were never as good as my on track efforts. Um, although I did get to write a, a regular column for Jaguar World magazine, um, you know, for several years, um, doing our cars and race reports. Uh, so, um, which is again something you know I would never have thought I could do. And um, so through the BWRDC. Um, you know, we 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 started all sorts of initiatives and carried on work that that many other women had been doing, and certainly today, um, 
the if you watch touring car meeting um, and some of the other stuff, there's quite a few, still not enough, um, but there's lots of young women now who are knocking on the door of um, either touring cars or, you know, Abby Pulling is in Formula 4 at the moment. And, um, you know, th- there's some really talented young women who who really ought to be on the grid. Um, and and I, it, one thing that always slightly puzzles me that, um, you know, sponsors just want their company, you know, they want as much coverage as they can get. Well, you know, stick a woman on touring cars. Um, and rightly or wrongly, if she's the only woman, she's going to get a great deal of media attention, which I would have thought sponsors would go for. Um, but they, they, you know, it doesn't seem to happen. So I think there's a long way to go. But um, I think more and more young girls and women are realising that motorsport, uh, as opposed to horse-type events, uh, you know, is an option for them. Um, and in, certainly in terms of finances, I know people who've show jumps and all the rest of it. And as you move up those levels, the costs are similar to motorsport. You know, if you've got a top eventer, um, you know, you've got to have uh, equipment, horse boxes. We, you know, the, the costs are, are equivalent and um, are actually sitting in a car is far less dangerous than sitting on top of a horse. Mm. Absolutely. Well, we've certainly seen a lot more women coming through the pit lanes of race teams at the highest level. Um, mm. One of the best uh, team managers I've ever seen racing uh, uh, and, and working with a team was, of course, Lena Gade, who ran the Audi team for many years as part oh, of the World Endurance yeah. Championship. And we've yeah. got real great, iconic women like that to act as role models for the future. But what do you think the barriers are currently for young women getting into the sport? When they look at the sport, what do you think is putting them off at the moment? Well, it's it's still very macho. It's still very male-dominated. Um, and I, uh, I think young women lack confidence. And funny, I, I give you sort of an, uh, um, an analogy. I was at Autosport um, a few years ago, and... Um, yeah, there's always these simulators, you know, and they're very good nowadays, you know. Um, and there'll be a queue of people, you know, waiting to have a go on these various simulators. And, uh, and I was chatting to a guy and, uh, you know, and I mentioned that I did a bit of racing. He said, come and have a go on the simulator. And there'd been these, you know, young lads who obviously do this on their computers all the time. Um, who were zipping around, um, I think it was uh, all... Donington Park, which is one of my favourite circuits, that got set up. And I was nervous about doing it because, I mean, I've raced at Donington. I've won races uh, at Donington numerous times. Um, but I'm useless when it comes to, um, you know, these computer simulators. And because there's all these blokes and young lads standing around, I didn't want to look an idiot, even though I'm a racing driver and none of them have probably been near a track. And and in a way, it, and I did have a go and it was okay, but, you know, um, nowhere near as good as some of these young lads. And and I think young women don't like the idea that because they're the only one, they're going to stand out. And that means they'll get more people looking at them and giving more attention instead of just quietly being able to get on and do their thing. 
And I think it puts women off and it's a shame um, because if there were more women, you wouldn't have that sense of, oh, I'm the odd one out, you know. Um, and there is that thing that fathers, you know, women, you know, young girls, it's, well, get a pony, get a horse, you know, it tends to be the typical thing. Whereas, you know, dads with sons will be tinkering on the car and and having a bit, you know, that mechanical confidence as well, which girls tend not to get so much. Um, it's changing, though. I mean, certainly schools and colleges are promoting women in motorsport, universities, and, and so it is changing. But it, it, it just seems to me it's taking a lot longer than it it needs to, um, which is why I used to go out and do talks and things and, um, and, and try and get people to, if you like, get beyond their own um, uh, reticence and, and just think, oh, sod it, you know, I'm going to do it because it, it is, it, there are, I think there are a few things as rewarding as, as motorsport um, and, and, Actually, and that's, uh, I'm not being sexist because I've never thought, oh, I've got to beat these blokes. I've actually never thought that. Um, you know, and, and I, hopefully people don't, you know, mind if they've been beaten by a woman. I, I've never got that sense. But, it, you know, because it feels very um, equal when you're there. It's just that it doesn't look very equal. And I think that's what puts people off. Do you think it's important, and you made the point earlier that, it is one of the few sports where men and women can compete together on the same playing field. Is it important, therefore, to maintain that and not end up with a women's Formula One championship, for example, to keep everyone together in one championship? I mean, I remember when the, the W Series was announced and, um, and and I was still involved with the WRDC and, and some of us were reticent about it and others not so. Um as a rule, I think it's a shame that there's a separate series, but we supported the W series um, because it gave a lot of, and there's quite a few WRDC members in that, as well as obviously international women from all over the place. It gave uh, an opportunity for women, a full grid of women to show people, potential sponsors, the world, other women, other girls, that, you know, women can do this. And and so I think, although it's not an ideal, at this point in time, I think um, it's a great um, showpiece to show that actually, do you know, there ought to be more women doing this. And I know all the women on that grid would much rather be racing in a, a formula with other chaps um but at the moment you know the prize money is fantastic so it's giving some of those women great opportunities um to then maybe go back into british gt or because quite a few women have been um, very successful actually in british gt in recent years so it's giving them a platform to you know, get a bit of money behind them and then go back maybe into other formulas. So, it, yeah, I think it's a, a sign of the times that at the moment women need all the help they can get to promote their abilities and therefore I wouldn't knock it. 
Well, I'm hoping that someone listening to this podcast now and this fantastic insight from you, Gail, will be inspired to come and join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Race Championship in 2021. We heard from Colin Porter earlier on the great plans for that into the new season and the increased mm-hmm. TV coverage that the series is going to receive as a result of that. So let's just hope we've inspired someone. And of course, if we have inspired someone, you can help them with the next step because you are actually an ARDS racing instructor as well, aren't you? Yes, I probably would need to renew my badge. But yes, I also then subsequently became an ARDS instructor and, and worked part-time doing um you know supercar drives and all that sort of stuff as well as instructing so um yeah and and i've certainly done um some track days with uh with with other women well chaps and women actually um so yeah just as a way of raising a bit of extra money and uh, and certainly now that i've i've jacked in my full-time job um that's something that um i might get back into to do a bit more regularly so uh yes it would be nice if if um if we can get the grids up next year this year i didn't race partly because of covid and and my arm um and um but yeah hopefully i'll I'll bring the xjs out again next year and um you know it, it looks exciting for next year well we look forward to seeing you back on the grids gail and uh, thanks for joining us here on the jaguar enthusiast club podcast you're very welcome that's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com and you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages don't forget you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the join today button on the top right hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the fantastic glossy 130 page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide jaguar family that is the jc this is the jaguar enthusiasts club podcast subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com